Thanks for being uh, flexible, Lorraine. That did help us a lot, I think, having it around the right way. Um, so appreciate that very much. Uh, we'd love you to have um, Exodus chapter 3 open uh, in front of you. If you can do that in your Bibles, um, that'd be super. As I said this morning, it's on page one of your phones and um, whatever page it is in your, uh, in your Bibles. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us and then we'll jump in. Father, you are good and we thank you for your living word. Father, we thank you that as the author, you are here this morning by your Holy Spirit. Teach us through this word this morning so that we might know you better. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, I wonder, how did you go getting to know uh, the people that you were chatting with just then? Did you exchange some pleasantries? You said, hey, what'd you get up to on the weekend? Yeah, something like that. That's, that's pretty good. That's not a bad thing to do. But when we're trying to get to know someone, it's, um, it's a little bit like playing a game of ping pong. Have you heard this analogy before when you're having a conversation with someone? So you take the ball and you hit it over the net and say, hi, how are you doing? And if they're playing the game, they'll say, back, I'm fine, thank you. And then the ball comes back, right? And the idea is that as you go backwards and forwards, provided that we're both playing the game, you have more revelation about who the other person is. You have as much as they choose to tell you. And awkward conversations are when you keep hitting ping pong balls over the thing and none come back. Do, do you know this experience? And eventually you go, my bucket of ping pong balls is out. And we wander away because it's just become a little bit too awkward. How do we get to know people? Well, we get to know people in the exchange of conversation, but ultimately it's determined by how much they want to let you get to know them. Okay? It depends on how much they choose to reveal. What we're going to look at today is God choosing to reveal himself. God choosing to tell us more about who he is. Now, we're in a, a series, if you're new with us today, we're in a series where we're looking at my overview of the Bible. So I have a picture overview of the Bible. This is the Old Testament in pictures, and then this is the New Testament all the way through to the end there. And basically what we've been doing is been working through one of these pictures at a time. And last week, we got up to the story of Abraham. And the very next story, the one that we're doing today, the next picture is this one. Uh, it's the story of the escape, the salvation of God's people from Egypt. And you think, Abraham, Egypt, no problems. They're right next to each other in the timeline. They must be really close to each other. But that's not the case. The exodus is considerably removed from Abraham. In fact, there's at least 400 years that they are slaves in Egypt. It's a long time, isn't it? So we have these amazing promises made to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you a land and make you a blessing and make your name great. And then they spend 400 years as slaves in Egypt. And so the question becomes, I guess, we know about Moses. Almost everybody will have heard about Moses at some point. The question is, where does Moses fit into this story? Well, Moses turns up in our timeline when God's people are weary They've been slaves, and the things have been getting worse and worse for them. They've started to go, well, where is this God? Where is the God who made these amazing promises? And I would suggest that perhaps they've been forgetting who God truly is. And maybe they're beginning to wonder, were all these gods that we see on the columns and in the pyramids, all the gods of the Egyptians, were they the winners? Is the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he a loser? Is he a loser in Egypt? Because nothing has happened for us. Here we are. 
we're slaves and it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And so we, we wonder, where does Moses fit in? Now, I don't know if you know this, but Moses' story actually turns up in the New Testament. Can I take you? Have a look in your Bibles. Come with me to Acts chapter 7. We're going to go to Acts chapter 7. This is a really interesting. Um, a, a guy called Stephen, one of the early followers of Jesus, he's up in court and he's on charges and he's been asked to give an account of what has been going on. And he starts by telling them a history of the people of Israel. And Moses turns up in this account. So I want you to look with me how he describes the life of Moses. In verse 18 it says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Gee, I think it's interesting the way that Stephen speaks about him. He says that. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And we remember this part of the story, the little reed basket in the river. Brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Again, notice how Stephen speaks of the life of Moses, powerful in speech and action. When Moses, verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you hurt each other? The man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian the other day? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And then we read that after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the bushes, in the flames of a burning bush. You see, the interesting thing is, Moses, by this stage, is old. Has anyone worked out how old he is? Simple maths. He's 80. And uh, I said at the um, 845 service, there's a particular part of our um, gathering this morning that can be very encouraged. You're retired, no problems. Uh, God hasn't, you haven't dropped off his agenda. You haven't retired from usefulness in the kingdom of God. In fact, God starts with an 80-year-old shepherd who's in a foreign land. And how does he catch his attention? Well, he catches his attention in one of these incredibly famous passages. Come with me back to Exodus chapter 3. I'd love you to look at it with me as, uh, as we work through this story. Exodus chapter 3. Verses 1 to 3, we read this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? Well, it's a really remarkable story. Here's our old shepherd, in a foreign place, and in the midst of life, God turns up. 
So he, he wasn't having a holy day. He was moving some sheep around to try and get them. To, and in the middle of that, flaming bush. God, the God of the universe, catches the attention of this ancient shepherd. That's pretty remarkable. I want you to see that it says that God appeared to him. It says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And we're going to see in what follows that this angel is the presence of the living God. The presence of the living God. An angel of the Lord appears. But I want you to note, I've put up there curious humility. The God of the universe is going to appear to Moses. Now he could appear, as he does later, in a towering pillar of fire. He could appear as an earthquake, as darkness, as anything. Instead, he occurs as a bush on fire. Now, I don't know how big the bushes were there, but they're not massive trees, right? Here's a, we could set this one on fire. It probably would burn too because it's made of plastic, right? But okay. So here's the thing. God appears in a burning shrub for all intents and purposes. Now, that's actually pretty humble, isn't it? It's not towering, it's not intimidating, and it's designed to catch his attention and to draw him near rather than drive him away. Do you see that? So he goes, oh, that's pretty interesting. What's going on there? And so he moves over towards the bush. And we'll see what happens when he gets there in verse 4. When the Lord saw he had gone over to look. Isn't this beautiful? God's watching. When he saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I was struck by this as I was reading this week. It was just a little aside in one of the the books I was reading about this passage. And it said, do you notice how God calls to him, Moses, Moses? I thought, is it because he wasn't paying attention the first time? No, no, no. There's a beauty. Apparently in Hebrew, this repetition is a sign of intimacy. Do you remember when God calls Samuel and he says, Samuel, Samuel? Yeah. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. And in fact, even when God calls to Saul on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you... It's It's actually an intimacy of address. And so the God who is there speaks to Moses, and he knows his name. A murderous foreign shepherd in his 80s. We're so familiar with the Bible passage. We just go, that's perfectly normal. Of course, God knows all of the wandering shepherds' names. We have to acknowledge that's pretty remarkable, right? Moses, Moses. Yep, that's me. You've got me, God. Here I am. And so he says, here I am. And then God says, you need to take off your shoes. Now, this is not because he's come to a brand new house in Oran Park. No, no, none of you live in Oran Park. When it's brand new, right, everybody has to take off their shoes when they come to the new house. Is that right? And maybe some of you still do this, in which case, power to you, your carpets will look much better than mine. Okay, but, but the idea is God's saying, you're in my house. Shoes off. The place where you are standing is made holy by my presence. Take your shoes off. We're in the holy presence of God. And then he says, who am I? He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the God who Israel worships. That's who is meeting with you here. 
And then he says some words that will be of great comfort to the people. Great comfort to Moses, very likely. In verse 7, we see this. The Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I came down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good land, a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I will now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. See, when things go bad for us, for a day, we start going, God, what are you doing? If it's a week, we go, God, I've dropped off your radar. Do you really care about me? And guys, when we're in the midst of a a years-long struggle, we can think, God, do you see me? Do you know me? It had been 400 years for the people of Israel. But here's what the living God said. He said something extraordinary. He says, I have seen, I have heard, and I'm concerned. I'm concerned. The God who is there sees and he cares. And he says, I'm going to come down. I've come down in order to bring you up. I've come so that you might go and bring the, uh, bring the Israelites into a good and spacious land. God says, I care, and I haven't forgotten, and I love you, and now I will save you. Moses is a pretty normal human. <laughs> He's a garden variety human. He has a lot of good education. He had some extraordinarily gracious breaks. God saved his life when he was young. But he's pretty ordinary. He's pretty normal. He's like us. And I want you to hear what his response to the burning bush vision of God. What's his response? Well, his response is like this. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You will worship God on this mountain. See, he's very normal. He says, God, who am I? And when when we see this, we kind of go, well, you're Moses. You're about to be really famous in the Bible. Go do it. And he says, I don't know that. I haven't read that chapter yet. I'm not there. But God says, go to Pharaoh and set my people free. And we go, oh, yeah, sure. No problems. We've all sung the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Ooh, baby, let my people go. We've done that. Some of you haven't. I have a lot. Okay. But here's here's the thing. Who was Egypt? Egypt was the superpower of the ancient Near East. The superpower of the ancient Near East. Who was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was, for all intents and purposes, practically God in the superpower of that day. You don't build a pyramid based on your ability to persuade people. Right? Awesome, world-changing power is in the hand of this one man, Pharaoh. And he's holding a million people, slaves, who are powering the whole economy. That's the people of Israel, right? And God says to him, oh, Moses, by the way, uh, shepherd boy, crusty old shepherd boy, I want you to go to the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world and rob his economy of all their slave labor and um, just ask him if you can go. Are you with me now? And so Moses says, well, how could I do that? Who am I to do this? I've got, I'm, a, I'm a murderer. I'm a runaway murderer. How am I going to go back into that court? 
And God says, you know what the answer is? You have fear and they have power. But he says, what I will do is I will be with you. You want to know where the power lies when you walk into that room? On your own, you and I are more powerful than all the rest and all the powers with me. Why should you do it? Why should you risk your skin by going back to Egypt? Because I will be with you. How extraordinary. It's the same for us today. The God of the universe says he will be with us. And he says, here's the sign that you can know I will be with you. When they come out, you'll worship me on this mountain. It said Horeb in there, didn't it? And you go, where's Horeb? Well, I got told this morning as someone was going out of the 845 service that it's a train stop somewhere between Tumut and somewhere else. That's not what they're talking about. Mount Horeb has another name. It's called Mount Sinai. And if you come back next week, Tim is going to tell us what happens on Mount Sinai. They do indeed come back to that mountain and they worship God there. But for Moses, who's there with the sheep, God's saying this whole nation will worship on this mountain. That's how you'll know that I'm with you. It must have seemed to him absolutely fantastic in prospect. We see that God answers his next challenge. Moses said to God, verse 13, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you. I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. So here's this. God says, I will give you my name. Moses says, what's your name? God says, I will tell you what my name is. My name is I am who I am. My name is I will be who I will be. We go, sorry? It's an odd name, isn't it? It's a strange thing to say. Who are you, God? I am the God I am. Well, these, these are the Hebrew letters here. Uh, it runs this way, so you can read it on somebody's trendy tattoo at some point in the future. Um, I am. This is, this is the name of God. Yahweh. Have you heard that before? Yahweh. That's the way of putting English letters. Yod, hey, vav, hey, Yahweh is, is the way of saying in English letters the name of God. Yahweh. In our Bibles, it's often put like this. The Lord. Can you look down and see? It's got capitals. Can you see? It says the Lord. Every time you see where it says there, the Lord, you're seeing this name, Yahweh. Okay? So when it says the Lord, you're seeing the proper name of God. And I want you to see, it's actually a re-revelation. In other words, God is choosing to tell us a name he'd already given them. If we go back to, uh, to Abraham, he also said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land and to take possession of it. God had said who he was to Abraham. But I suspect in 400 years of slavery, this name had dropped out. And so it's also connected to history. God says, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, 
the God of your fathers. In other words, this name that you're hearing is the name of the God that you know, but I'm telling you more about me. I am Yahweh. That is who I am. I am a God of promise. And I want you to think about this name because it occurs more than 5,000 times in the Old Testament. I didn't count them. But it occurs a lot. This is God saying who he is. And it occurs a lot in the Old Testament. I am. Why does that matter? The God who says I am has no beginning. The God who says I am has no ending. The God who says I am, he also has no dependency on anything else in the universe. Now, I think, uh, Steve, can you give me a hand, mate? Can you press escape, get out of the prezzo, get back into it, and I'll be able to keep clicking, and that'll help the whole thing go really well. Fantastic. You guys, this is the it's a revision class now, you're right? Okay, so no beginning, no ending. He's also the God who's independent. Because he says, I am, he does, he's not dependent on anything else. However, everything else that exists is dependent on him. Because he's the God who says, I am. He's the God who is totally constant. He will never change. He's the totally constant God. He says, I always am. I am. And because of that, he's a God who wants no idols. Um, I I think I said in the um, life group study this week, how do you play Pictionary with the word I am? Has anyone played Pictionary? Do you know the game? No. You all need to have a games night, clearly. Pictionary is a game, you get given a word and you have to draw a picture for it. You're not allowed to say the word, people are supposed to guess it from the picture. If I tell you that I'm the god of thunder, right, you can probably do something with that. Okay, right, okay, some of you Marvel fans are getting very good at that, okay. If if I tell you I'm the god of the waves and the ocean, no problems. You can draw that. If I tell you I'm the god I am, we're stuck for ideas, aren't we? What do you write? Well, it's because the true and living God doesn't want idols made, and so the name he gives us is I am. It's his glory, and it is his proper name. Well, what will happen in Egypt is pretty remarkable. God says, go and talk to Pharaoh and tell him, I want, I'm going to go and take a three-day journey. And we think, three days? That's not really very long, but apparently what it meant in ancient times, if I say I'm going for a three-day journey, I'm basically saying I'm off. Okay, That's apparently a turn of phrase that they use. I'm going on a three-day journey. That would be I'm leaving. Okay, it says, tell him I'm leaving. And then God says to Moses, you know what? He'll never let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. He'll never let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And God says, I'm going to be the mighty hand and you will plunder the Egyptians. You will plunder them, which is pretty remarkable because it is a group of people who have been slaves. They don't have any possessions. They don't have any possessions. And then Moses says, actually, God, you know what my problem is? My problem is I'm not very good at speaking. And God says, that's okay. Your brother's just uh, down the road, Aaron, and he's going to come and help you. He'll speak with you when you go to Pharaoh. And look, I reckon I've I've got a great brother. I love him to bits. I reckon me and Starry can, um, can go and take on anyone if God's with us. So I like it. Two brothers go and see Pharaoh. And God brings his mighty hand. Nine plagues strike the nation of Egypt. And each one of them, if we had a, different, a longer sermon, each one of them shows that one of the gods of Egypt fails. One of the gods of Egypt fails. God defeats the gods of Egypt in the plagues. And then it comes to this tenth plague. 
And now comes time for God to save his people. And what he does is he sets up a meal. And that's what uh, Lorraine uh, read for us in Exodus chapter 12. He sets up a meal. And what he says in the, uh, in, the, in the idea of the meal is, you're to meet in homes. I really like this. Our vision at New Life is seeing New Life come to every home. Not just individuals, but whole homes. Okay? And so here God says, gather people into homes. And if there are people who've got a little home, grab them into your bigger home so that you can share a lamb together. The idea is that we all eat the lamb until there's no lamb left. Okay? It's a meal that says this one thing will take care of all of us. God says, I'm going to come and kill the firstborn in Egypt. I'm going to kill the firstborn of Egypt. This is the 10th plague. But in order that your firstborn doesn't die, I want you to kill the lamb and put the blood over the doorframe. This one in the place of your son. And then he says, eat it like fast food because you're about to run out of the place. That's a drive-through, you see? It's an ancient drive-through. That's kind of what we're doing. And so he says, put the blood over the doorframe, on the sides of the post. And then what will happen, he says, is, if you have a look at verses 12 and following in chapter 12, uh, what he says uh, is this, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the, house, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so what we need is a perfect lamb. We need a perfect lamb. We need a blood substitute. You deserve to die, but this lamb dies in your place. And then God says on the night of the Passover, what will happen is I will pass over you. God says, I will pass over you because a substitute has been made. And then on that terrible night, wailing starts. A cry comes up at midnight as parents start finding that their children have died. This is the tragic judgment on God. And then Pharaoh issues his command, you've got to go. Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Because a mighty hand compelled him. And as they went, as they went out of Egypt, okay, they say to their neighbours, hey, have you got anything for us? And they say, take our treasure, take our treasure. And so God makes rich his people as they leave from slavery. They leave richer than they could possibly have acquired in the land of Egypt. God blesses them abundantly. And then they get to a place, they're, they're, they're running, running, running. They get to a place called the Red Sea. Have you heard of this? Cliffhanger, what will happen? And, and Moses, I mean, so Moses, Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his chariots out after them, right? It, it's the most advanced people in the world. They, they, the chariots are the, the, the fighters, the tanks. That's what they're sending out. They're sending, we're going to go and mow these guys down, right? And so there they are standing on the edge of the sea and they go, God, you did this incredible redeeming work and now we're going to drown. What's going to happen? Well, in the middle of the night, God puts a flaming pillar of fire between the Egyptians and his people. The wind blows, the sea opens up. They walk through on dry land until they get to the other side. Pharaoh and his army charge in to the caverns of water on either side. They charge in and in the middle of their crossing, the water closes over them. And as God and his people will sing for millennia after this, 
the horse and the rider you've thrown into the sea, and we will see them no more. God saves his people in Egypt. How wonderful. And this account of God's rescue sets up for us Jesus, the rescuer. Because we know this story, we can make sense of his story. And so we will see that Jesus is the revelation of God. Remember, God was revealing himself in, in the, burning, the burning bush. But he's revealed to him, himself ultimately in Jesus. Have a look at what it says here in Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. If you want to know who God is, you must know Jesus. You must know Jesus. We see that Jesus is the great I am. This is an extraordinary passage. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a debate with some Pharisees. And uh, he, says, he says this. He mentions Abraham. And they say to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Abraham lived 1,500 years ago before Jesus. He says, you're not 50 and you reckon you've seen Abraham. That's ridiculous. Have a listen to Jesus' answer. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And you sit there and you go and go, oh, everyone can say that, right? What does it mean for Jesus to say, I am? Well, I tell you, the people there knew what he was saying. Have a look what they did. As at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why were they going to do that? Because they could tell that he was blaspheming when he used the name of God about himself. Incidentally, this is a great passage for the Jehovah's Witnesses. There's no way of avoiding this. Jesus is claiming to be God. Are you with me? Yeah? And the people who were listening knew he was claiming to be God because they wanted to stone him. Wow. Jesus is the great I am. And then we see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. When did Jesus die? Easter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When is it in the Jewish calendar? Does anyone know? It's the Passover. It's the Passover when Jesus dies. He is the spotless lamb. He is the son of God. And so what we see here, get rid of the old yeast, it says in 1 Corinthians 5, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the sacrifice, the perfect substitute for us. And he's the one who brings full salvation. Have a listen to the way Galatians talks about being a Christian. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Just as a quiet aside, do you know our world doesn't know this about Christianity? Christianity is a whole bunch of rules. It's going to cramp my style, yada, 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 all the rubbish of the world, right? See what it says here? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You have freedom. Just sit there quietly. It's, it'll be fine. Um, you've been set free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In other words, the definitive picture, what it means to be saved, is you and I were slaves to sin. We were in Egypt, trapped in sin. God rescued us in the Passover of Jesus on the cross and set us free. Can, can you see this? Brilliant, brilliant. 
So here's the thing. What should we do if we know this story? I want to encourage you to take your shoes off again. Not right now, please, don't. But, but what I mean by that is I want us to rediscover holiness. What does it mean to meet our God, the God who is really there, the awesome, the mighty God? Well, God, I'm so comfortable with you, I've got, I'm going to keep my shoes on. When do we ever meet holy God? Where we go, crikey, I better take my shoes off. When do we respect and honour the God who is there as holy? Let's take our shoes off again. Let's join the salvation exodus from sin. So if today you haven't left Egypt of sin, come through the Red Sea of Jesus and find yourself safe on the other side. There's another thing that we're going to do today. The Passover was put in place so that the people of, e- the people of Israel would tell a story about God's salvation. So they would have a way of remembering that God had saved them. And the idea was, tell your children. You should tell your kids this awesome story about how God has saved his people. And we're going to do it with a lamb, they say, and we're going to eat it with unleavened bread because it's a fast food meal, so we don't have time for it to rise. It would be really great if we had a salvation meal. If we had a way to tell one another the story that we hold dear about how we're saved, well, let's do that today. I want us to be a people who know the story of our salvation, who eat the remembrance meal and remember the way that God saved us. I want us to be a people who find our story in his story. Let me pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, I do thank and praise you that you have saved us I thank you that in Jesus, you have offered us freedom from our sin. Father, I pray today as we partake in this meal of the Lord's Supper, that we might remember you and treasure you. So we're going to say some words together. Uh, The bold words are for you. The light words are for me. Um, If you're new here today, we would love for you to take part in this meal. If you're trusting in Jesus, this is our salvation meal. So lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Well, the night before he died, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray this prayer together. Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. Well, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, and we do this until he returns. Well, come, let us eat and drink, and remember that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. What we're going to do is we're going to pass the uh, bread and the juice around. If you can hang on to it, and then we'll uh, share it together um, once we've got everybody with some in front of them. Um, If I can have some people to help, do all four of you guys want to come and help me? Would that be okay?